Esther chapter 4. If you're visiting us um, or you're new this week, uh, we are looking at the book of Esther in the Bible. That's why we've just, uh, Hannah's just read that to us, uh, part of this story that happened uh, two and a half thousand years ago uh, in Persia. I want to start by talking about the very best war movies. The very best war movies do two things. They paint the big picture, the big events, whether it's about the the First World War or the the Second World War or or any other world war or or any other war. They tell you the big events, what's going on. They they, they put you in the the conference rooms between the prime ministers and the, the war generals as they make their big decisions. But they also then dip you down right into the story. And they focus on individuals and they show you what's happening from the ground up. So not just generals deciding we're going to attack here on this day, but what does that look like for soldier A or soldier B as they enter their first or second conflict, as they lose loved ones, as the people that they did serve with are now dead or they're thinking about home and the loved ones they've left behind. As we're in the book of Esther, last week the narrator of this story was given as big picture was talking about the events that are going to impact the whole Jewish race under the Persian Empire and under the Emperor King Xerxes this decree decree that had come down that every Jew was to be annihilated across the entire empire but chapter 4 then drills us down to an individual choice We're going to see the choice faced by one individual in this great grand narrative. The book of Esther comes back to its title character, to Esther. And we're going to see how Esther faces a discomforting yet daring choice. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to use five uh, headings, all beginning with the letter C. Crying, comfort, cost, convictions, and choice. So here we go. We're going to start with the crying of Mordecai. Or Mordecai. I think that's the, one of the big decisions when you preach in a book like this. Is if there's multiple preachers, they're going to pronounce it differently. I'm sorry. But, uh, as we travel back two and a half thousand years to Susa, the capital city of this Persian empire and the citadel of Xerxes, the king. The soundtrack to the opening episode, of the opening of this episode, is not some lovely choral piece in the background. There's not a harp or a piano playing. It's the sound of tears. The sound of weeping. It's the sound of one man, Mordecai, and then a whole people reacting to the news that the king has said they are to be utterly destroyed. And we were told at the end of the previous chapter that the city is in confusion. As people think, ask the question, why? But for the Jews and for Mordecai, there's not so much confusion as devastation. And specifically for Mordecai, Because it had been his actions that had brought this about. 
his refusal to bow down to Haman had brought about this overwhelming and overbearing response from the king's favourites, Haman. And so Mordecai faces the recriminations of his actions. And so he's devastated, but not just devastated, he's quite deliberate in his mourning, weeping. He heads up towards the gate of the king's court. And there's a line there in the sand which says, if you're behaving in such a manner, you can come no further. Nobody can be sad in the presence of the king. You're not allowed in his house. You're not allowed in his courtyard. Because you're not allowed to give the impression that anyone can be sad around the king. You're not allowed to give the impression that there is anything other than pure joy because of King Xerxes and his decisions. You need to affirm with your life and your words and your outward behaviour, but this is the greatest life, that King Xerxes is a joy-bringing and utterly satisfying ruler. So if you're mourning and if you're weeping, you don't come past this line. But Mordecai goes right up to the line. And we're told that he takes off his normal clothes and he puts on sackcloth. Imagine making a a t-shirt and some trousers out of hessian. That rough material. That's that's what this is. Putting on clothing that every time you move it would feel as though there's, there's rough like dragging at your skin. It's kind of the equivalent of employing somebody to walk around you and shout at you all day, don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable. Because every time you move your legs or your arms, scratch, scratch, scratch. It's designed to stop you being comfortable because you know you cannot be comfortable. And Mordecai cannot be comfortable because his whole people are to be destroyed. The decree decree has come down. The end is nigh. The Jewish people will be wiped from the face of the earth. And Mordecai is devastated and deliberate. Because he positions himself so that his discomfort might be known and might affect the comfort of his cousin, Queen Esther. So the background is crying, and now we come to Esther and the comfort of Esther. And specifically, what the author of this book, be a man or a woman, we don't know who wrote it, but the author seems to be putting on the question now to Esther, who are you? Whose side are you on? Who will you choose to be? In this story, Esther's the only person we're told has two names. She has the the, the name Esther, her Persian name, and the name Hadassah, her Jewish name. And this question is being raised to her, who are you? Deep down, 
who are you? Because we can look outwardly and say, here is the queen of the empire. Isn't she a Persian? Isn't she just like the king, Xerxes? But we've also heard the backstory. We've heard about her relationship with her cousin, Mordecai, who brought her up after her parents had passed away. Her heritage being a Jew from the people of Israel, from Abraham's line. The people who had been chosen by God, who had been rescued from slavery, who had been given God's words of life about how to to live and to live well, who had been given their own land, a people whom God had dwelt amongst. Who is she? She's Esther. Or is she Hadassah? And all we've known so far is that she's embracing the Esther side. As she'd gone in to the king and to this whole process during the the beauty contest, she had kept her lineage, her heritage, her Jewishness hidden. On her CV, it reads only Esther, born in Persia, parents unknown. And we find Esther closeted away in the palace, hidden from the realities of the people of God. So much so that whilst we're told across the empire Jews are mourning this decree, the Jew in the next room to the king is blissfully unaware. And so when Mordecai approaches the king's gate and can go no further and people begin to talk about this man who's wailing and dressing so funnily, she's got no idea what's going on. Her response to Mordecai's grief is, well, she's upset to her credit. But her solution is woefully inadequate. Rather than moving towards him in his grief, she seems to try and remove his discomfort. Look down at verse 4 of chapter 4. We read it earlier. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. It's a well-meant but inadequate response. You see, Esther cannot comfort Mordecai because she is blinded by her own comfort. She doesn't even know why he's upset. She's blind despite being so close to where the decision has been made. Many things can, can cause us to be blind. Blind to the realities of God's people and God's purposes. Wealth can. Having lots of money. And by lots, I don't mean that you drive a Bugatti. I mean that you've got a car. That you've got a home. A roof over your head. That you've never worried about the amount of food on the table. 
that sort of wealth. The wealth which makes us utterly self-reliant. Or a worldliness that means we're so like everybody else around us that we're just unaware of what, when God says things should be different. But Mordecai is a faithful friend to Esther. And he's not content to let her stay comfortable and ignorant. Look down at verse 7 and 8. Esther sends one of her servants and we're told Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, in which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explained it to her. And now she knows. The decree has come. How will Esther respond? As Mordecai's grief and cries and the reason for them come and hit home for Esther, how will she respond? Because Mordecai asked something of her. He told him, Esther's servant, to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Our third C, the cost of standing up. Listen to what Esther says in response. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, the king has but one more that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther says, if I do what you're asking of me, it will mean death. Sure death unless this king who is not famed for his mercy by any means, not known for his kindness, unless he extends his scepter and shows mercy, then I'm dead. And maybe Esther's thinking here of what happened with Xerxes' previous wife. We read about her in chapter 1, Vashti. Xerxes, not known for his mercy, not known for his kindness. Oh, and she adds, the king has not sent for me for 30 days. It's been a month. There is a cost for Esther if she will stand up. And there is a cost for any who would stand up to follow God. To follow Jesus here and now is to accept that there will be hardships. Under this global, universal battle that we were hearing about last week, everyone who joins the side of King Jesus will place a target on his or her head 
for the enemy of God's people. Jesus said it. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it has hated me first. He said, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then Paul, who followed Jesus and went to tell the known world about him, said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we've heard, haven't we, from what Nick, how Nick opened our service and through the, the prayers of some of our young people. It is the reality today that to follow Jesus is to count the cost. There is a cost to obedience to God. And it's not just out there, and it's not just generally true. Esther realizes in this moment what we all must realize, that it's true for me. If I'm going to be faithful to King Jesus, there will be a cost. You can imagine the the thought process running through Esther's mind as she hears this message from Mordecai. She thinks, can't can't I just stay safe? Nobody knows who I am. I'll, I'll be fine. And maybe she thinks, even if some people cop it, I'll be okay. I live in the palace. Maybe she thinks, what, what if I do go before the king and I tell him who I am? What if the king doesn't change his mind? Then I'm just lumping myself in with everybody else and in a year's time, then it'll be death for me. Wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be safer? Those sort of questions bouncing around her mind and her heart. The cost is real and it's in stark contrast to the comfort that she has had. And it's a choice that faces all of God's people. Will we forsake comfort for the sake of Christ? Comfort or Christ? When it comes to our money, when it comes to our reputation. When it comes to success, and I'm not talking about being celebrities here, but the sort of social success that maybe we aspire to in in circles like ours. To be married or to have a, a good career or to get good grades in school, to keep up the family expectations or the family traditions. It's far more comfortable to fit in. but what does it look like to follow Jesus? Cost, not comfort. If our idea of living for God has no place for cost, for sacrifice, then we have misunderstood what Jesus calls us to. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, And follow him. And Jesus modelled to us what godly living looks like. It looks like self-sacrifice for the good of others. And these are big decisions, aren't they? 
and they're not easy. And this is not about some sort of masochism. It's not choosing hard things for the sake of hard things. It's about choosing the right thing for the right reasons, even though it's hard, even though it's costly. And so three points into our sermon, we're left with this question. <laughs> how, do we, how, does, how is Esther going to choose? And how do we choose which way we will go? Well, as we continue down, we'll see, like all the best choices, it's informed by truth. It's shaped by experience. And it isn't made alone. Mordecai is going to speak into Esther's situation through Esther's servant. And let's listen into what he says. And let's listen to the convictions of Mordecai. Let me just read again from verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Three convictions stand behind what Mordecai says to her. Imagine them as three pillars in a building. Imagine walking into a building, it's got three big pillars that are holding up everything else. They might be covered in plasterboard, they might be, have lights wrapped around them. But underneath are three solid foundations. Firstly, God will finish what he has started. You see, it seems so straightforward. She needs to speak up. It's obvious, isn't it? But Mordecai says, even if she does not, God will save his people. Even if you choose to step aside, God will save the Jews some other way because God doesn't fail. Mordecai leans into the history of the interaction between God and humanity and specifically the promises that God has made in time and space to particular humans, to those that he has called to himself, promises of salvation that he made to Eve right back at the start, after the fall, that one day one of her descendants would come and would crush that great ancient enemy, Satan. Promises of blessing made to Abraham. That from one man would come a great nation. Who would live in a good place that God provided under God's care and rule. Promises of an everlasting kingdom. Ruled by one of David's descendants. A kingdom of righteousness and justice. All these things you would imagine are going through Mordecai's mind as he says... It doesn't matter if it's Esther, somebody will step up because God does not fail. God will finish what he has started. 
And Mordecai stands at a point in history where he says, God has not finished working yet. It's not all yet come to be. And so God will do it. God always keeps his promises. He is never held back by circumstances outside of his control. He never makes mistakes in his planning. He's never waylaid by the actions of other people. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It is certain. Because God will finish what he has started. God does not fail. Secondly, God will not be fooled by false faith. You can imagine that Mordecai desperately wants to look Esther in the eye. To sit down with her one-to-one and speak to his cousin. And he has to do it through a mediator, but he says... Don't think that you can escape this. Don't think that just because you are in the king's palace that you will miss out. And he doesn't say it because because the Jews won't be destroyed. This is not a logic thing. This is the reality that God knows our hearts and our lives. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Some commentators suggest that Mordecai is making a threat here. That if she doesn't speak up, he'll dob her in. I I think that's an unfair reading. But his conviction, whether this is some sort of passive-aggressive threat or, or not, his conviction is that she cannot hide from God. And it's very much in keeping with the God of the Bible, a God who is transcendent, above human beings and above our ways. God is not a boss who's, who never checks your timesheet so you can get away with, with nicking off early. God is not a, a teacher who's just a bit absent when it comes to marking and will never you know, notice the fact that you've just copied your friend's homework. No, God's not some sort of box-ticking manager. He's a relational God who de- desires transformation of heart and life in his people. And so he's interested in our motivation and he notices why we do the things we do. So we can fool everybody else but not God. And Jesus brings this sentiment to us. He talks about people who will say in the end, Lord, we did X and Y and Z for you. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. God will not be fooled by false faith. Esther Don't think you can escape this. Third conviction. God's planning is sure, but not always seen. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
We have commented over these opening weeks of our series that that the word or the title or the name of God is utterly absent from the book of Esther. But Mordecai is reading, reading the events and saying, it's not a mistake that you're here. It's not a mistake that Esther is in the position she is in. And there have been no comments about the rights and wrongs of Mordecai's behaviour and Esther's behaviour and the decisions they've made, whether they were good or bad or, or somewhere in between. But God has been at work. That a Jewish girl would sit by the side of the king of this foreign empire, And she would be there at a time when this great threat to the Jewish people arises. God's planning is sure. God is at work. In all the circumstances of our life, I think we're going to say this most weeks as we go through the book of Esther, we're going to see God's hand in the circumstances and I would imagine that if you're anything like me you want to see that and you want other people to point out that that's true in your life that God's hand is at work through all of our mistakes and through all of our weak effort and through all of the things that we cannot explain all the things that have gone wrong or gone well God's planning is sure, even if we can't see it. Three convictions. That God will finish what he has started, that God will not be fooled by false faith, that God's planning is sure. And all of these help us to look at Jesus as we look forward from these events, as we pause in our story. We find in Jesus the fulfillment of these convictions. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the king. He is the the one who restores the relationship between God and man. He is the one who defeats death and defeats that great enemy, Satan. He is the one who brings about the forgiveness of sins and restores the relationship between God and man. He is the one who brings life. To a dying people. Jesus is the one man who is found to be utterly true in all of his dealings with God and with mankind. Jesus is the one in whom we find no posturing, no faking and no failing. He passes every test. He keeps the whole law. He loves God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus has no worry about being found out for he never shortcuts and he never fails. And we see in Jesus' life that God's planning is sure even when we don't see it, don't we? All the questions that we would ask of the life of Jesus the Bible gives it to us. 
And you would think, what is going on there? Why do Mary and Joseph have to take this whacking great trip to Bethlehem? Why does Jesus have to have one of his followers who betrays him after being so close to him for three years? Why does Jesus have to die? Somebody who was utterly innocent in every way. But God's planning is sure. At just the right time, the book of Romans tells us. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's perfect, providential work. And we see it most clearly in Jesus. I wonder those three convictions. Where do we stand on them? Do we believe that God will finish what he has started? Do we recognise and grasp and grapple with the truth that God will not be fooled by false faith or fake faith? Do we trust that God's planning is sure, even if we can't see it? Do we let these convictions inform our choices? Let's go back to Esther. Our fifth C, the choice of Esther. The book of Esther, I think, we're thinking about this a little bit, is a little bit like a document that's been redacted. Do you know what redaction is when... We were all talking about Boris Johnson, you know, the, the Grey Report and when it was going to come out and there'd be, you know, like three words left in it after the government's reaction. Things that would be blanked out. It feels as though the narrator of this story has gone through, written the story out and then said, right, I'm deliberately going to blank out every reference to God. Because there's so much of God in there that seems to have been just blanked out. What choice will Esther make? What is she supposed to do? How are these convictions that Mordecai has laid out before, how are they going to inform her decision? Well, in this redacted document, there are a couple of phrases in this chapter that have been left in. And they give us a clue. It's a little bit like a, uh, almost like a treasure map or a, a co- keyword or something that points us to other parts of the Bible. And so, at the start of the chapter, there's the description of how the Jews are responding. Uh, Verse 3, there's a great mourning amongst the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Or fasting and weeping and lamenting. And that phrase, who knows, that Mordecai uses. Both of those phrases come up in the prophecy of Joel. And those three, fasting and weeping and and lamenting, ought to come together. They're found in Joel chapter 2. And I just wonder if that's deliberate. As though in their point to, to, uh, the, the, the narrator's point to say, where is God? Where is God? They're pointing us to other parts of the Bible to inform us. And those phrases, if we're familiar with the Bible, will stand out and think, oh, hang on. Doesn't Joel 2 mention 
those and the fact that there are two of them and they they're quite different there's lots of fasting and weeping together there's weeping and mourning together but to have all three let me read to you the words of Joel chapter 2 I knew I was going to do this I knew I was going to be able to find Joel when I got up here here we go Let the nations, oh no, that's chapter 3. Here we go. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. If we let Joel 2 speak into Esther chapter 4, we see that Esther's choice is this. Will she turn? Will she return to God? says Esther which way are you going to walk forget about what has gone before what will you do now and Esther 4 asked the same question of each of us what will we do in the light of the reality of this great battle that is commenced in our world and is ongoing that Jesus has stepped into and won the decisive victory. Whose side are we on? And will we choose comfort or cost? Will we turn? Will we return to the Lord our God who is gracious and compassionate? If you've tried to avoid the cost... Will you hear the words of the Lord who opens his arms and says, come back to me? If you have been too won over by comfort, will you turn back to God? Will you choose life rather than death? Because that is the beautiful irony of what happens In these final words of Esther chapter 4. Esther chooses life. Though it might mean death. She says go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther says, I'm a Jew. I am one of God's people. She, in her actions, she associates herself with all the other Jews in Susa and says, let us depend on God, let us fast. I think there's reaction, uh, redaction there. Let us fast and pray. But she says... If I perish, I perish. 
But even as she chooses to go God's way, she chooses life. And for us, our hope, if we choose to follow Christ, if we choose to give up comfort, our hope of life and joy is even more certain than it was for Esther. For those of us who have been compromised, for those of us who have loved comfort more than Christ, if we turn back to him, we will find forgiveness. And we will find welcome. And we will find a future in this world and in the world to come with Christ. And we will not be disappointed. And we will not regret it. And we will find life in all its fullness. If only we will turn back. That is the choice that lays before us. Even today. Let me pray. Father, we are a people marked by failure and weakness, compromise, choosing comfort. But we are a people who you are speaking to this afternoon. And you are calling us to follow Jesus. You are calling us to see his example that there is life through death. And you are the God who always keeps your promises. Father, let us be men and women, boys and girls of true faith. Who will count the cost, not because we want a hard life, but because we believe that it is better by far to know you, to live for you. And to endure hardship and suffering for you. It is better by far than sticking in our comfortable palaces. Father, strengthen us through your spirit. Give us the the power to respond to what you have been speaking to us this afternoon. Change us and transform us. And help us even now to worship you with joy and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.